Okay. Hello, everyone out there. We are live. How's it going, everyone out there? Steven Ignoramus here. Welcome to Call Me Ignorant, episode number 23, 12.36 p.m., June tw- excuse me, June 18th, 2019. So pleased you could be with us. Call Me Ignorant is a live conversation sh- show, whether with an interesting content creator, an expert in a field, a controversial figure, or with a fellow human being trying to spread a message. Call Me Ignorant will try to solve the problems of the world, conversationally speaking. We are streaming live right now to YouTube, Twitch, Periscope, Mixer, DLive, and Picarto. If you can't catch the show live, you can find it after the fact on the above-mentioned platforms, also on BitChute and freedomscoop.com. Call Me Ignorant is also available in podcast format on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean. You can find me on Twitter at IgnoramusSteve or send me an email at StevenIgnoramus at gmail.com. Topic ideas, questions, and potential guests for the show are much appreciated. On the program today, I have Dr. Eric Larson. He is an anesthesiologist and the host and creator of The Paradox Podcast. The Paradox is a fun and lively discussion show with a couple of doctors on the practice of medicine. Occasionally serious, usually lighthearted, and accidentally accidentally informative, The Paradox is a show for physicians to learn more about what is going on in their field and a great place for them to direct their friends and family to better understand the challenges that they face. I'm really excited to have Dr. Larson on the program today to talk about the healthcare industry and to clear up some common misconceptions about it. Welcome to Call Me Ignorant, Dr. Eric Larson. Good to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. That's cool. I'm excited for this. And, uh, you know, um, most people that I, you know, most people that I have on the program, I reach out to them, but you sent me an email to see if you could come on here after I interviewed Steffi Cole. And I really appreciate that. So it's good to have you on. Yes, my pleasure. No, I, I like, uh, I like the conversational aspect and I like the fact that we sort of Try and talk through problems. I mean, I, I'm glad that we can try and solve the healthcare problem in just an hour. I think we, I think that's very doable. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's ripe with controversy, and you know, so a lot of things I don't understand it. And I'm definitely uh, one of the things I kind of included in on in on the questions for today is, uh, you know, um, kind of fear of the unknown sometimes makes me angry. Sometimes, you know, but I I see that in myself, and I want I have some questions about like what we can fix, what what I'm dumb about, what you're smart about, and things in between and stuff like that. So, um, why did you start your podcast? Uh, what gave you the inspiration for it and stuff like that? Well, it's mainly uh, I would always listen. So, in the OR, I'm always listening to music, and quite frankly, when I get in the car, the last thing I want to do is listen to more music. So, I always enjoy listening to talk radio. But the problem is, a lot of times, it's either they're not talking about things I'm interested in, or you know, if I'm interested in basketball, they're talking about football in you know April or something. I'm not interested in the NFL draft, and so it's hard to get to listen to what you want to listen to. And for politics, especially, it's hard finding what you, what actually motivates me, what I'm interested in on local radio. And so I started listening to podcasts probably three or four years ago. Mm. And the number of them just would talk about, you know, doing yourself or whatever. And so I thought, well, I could, I've got some interesting things to say, I think, on medicine. I've got a few sort of, I've got a few episodes in mind. I don't know what I do beyond like two or three. I'll have a couple dozen people listen and I'll kind of get it off my chest. Um, So, you know, I'm, just about ready to put out episode 51. So it turns out there's a lot of stuff to talk about because there are a lot of problems in medicine and there's a lot of really cool stuff that's going on that you probably don't know about. And I certainly didn't. And, uh, and so it's been a fun journey for me, but it was, it was really just because I thought, well, why not me? And so I just thought I'd try it out. And I don't know, it was kind of a fun challenge to sort of figure out all the technical aspects. I'm, as you can see, kind of older. And so it's harder you know, to try and figure out how to do the whole thing with, editing and audio and building a website, all that kind of stuff. So it was 
kind of like a hobby, I guess, in some ways. All right. Did you uh, take any like, uh, I don't know, classes, tutorials on the editing and, and tech or did you just kind of mess it up as you go like me? Well, I probably should have uh, done some class. I, I would watch a lot. I watch plenty of YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he has a lot of them. And then I I had a, already a subscription to Skillshare. And so I watched a couple of those and helped, helped me create a website. And so I kind of patched it together. I just have a Mac and it just has free. The GarageBand is free. And actually it's Aside from buying a couple of microphones, investing in the website and a couple of little things, it's really not that expensive a venture, which is why so many people do it. I mean, like over half a million, I think. Um, but to be successful, I think, you know, you have to have the good content and all that other stuff, which is stuff I'm still trying to kind of figure out. Right. So um, why did you become a doctor? Was it, you know, I, I think you touched on this on a couple episodes of yours, but was this a lifelong dream or was it kind of when did this when you did, did you decide to become a doctor? So I'm pr pretty conventional in sort of how I go through things. And uh, I originally went to engineering school in, in, as an undergraduate, mainly because I liked science and math, but it wasn't anything because I knew anything about engineers. My father's a physician, uh, so I kind of knew about medicine, although he was he worked at student health at Michigan State for most of the, the my formative life growing up. So I never really saw the you know stuff on TV and all that kind of stuff. I had a guy who basically worked sort of a regular office job in some ways, regular hours, no call, no weekends, no holidays and stuff. And so it was very un, uh, unusual sort of medical job because he worked at student health at Michigan State. So anyway, so I went to med I went to college and about my junior year, I thought, yeah, this engineering thing is probably not what I want to do. I don't feel like I fit in real well with the engineers. I, I enjoyed the the subjects, but I thought, oh, maybe I'll just do med school. So it wasn't, I wish it was like some great story about why I got into it, but I, it just seemed like a logical thing to do because it, because it, it, it the engineering wasn't probably where I wanted to go. And so I thought, oh, I'll just try medicine. Hmm. So that's kind of how I get there. I wish I, again, I wish I had a, you know, story where I was sick for a long time and the people cared for me, convinced me <laughs> to go, but I don't really have an interesting story like that. Yeah, honesty is best. Um, are you, uh, are you, do you, are you at Michigan State now? Is that, are you practice in East Lansing? No, I actually am in Grand Rapids, and okay. so I practice in a large, a single specialty group here. We provide anesthesia coverage for a couple of different hospital systems, and I just work. I work at seven different locations personally, Whoa. and uh, we are faculty at Michigan State in their medical school. That we have all kinds of medical students. We have residency residents here and everything else. But um, I'm not actually. I don't receive any payment from Michigan State, so we're sort of faculty by accident that we just happen to work at this institution where they have lots of academic stuff going on. Oh, wow. Yeah, I lived in East Lansing for two years. I'm from Michigan originally, actually. actually. Oh, yeah. Well, that's yeah. where I, I grew up in East Lansing, basically. I mean, just outside of East Lansing, the, in Meridian Township. Okay, sweet. Nice. So um, anesthesiology, I mean, you know, uh, people know mostly, not mostly, kind of, they know one or two things about what that is. I'm, I'm one of those people. They they make the pain go away. They put you to sleep before a surgery. What is, uh, what you know, if you had to give your elevator pitch on what anesthesiology is and um, what are some like common misconceptions about it, what people don't know, what people think they know, things like that. So the shortest and sometimes the scariest way to put it, but I never actually put it to patients is that anesthesia is putting people into a medically induced coma and then put, and then turning it off and waking them up after you're done. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and that actually is exactly what it is. I mean, we're basically putting, putting you in a function where you're still alive. All your basic vital functions are continuing, but um, uh, we actually make sure you don't, you're not responsive, what we call noxious measures, you know, someone operating on you or doing things to you. And, and then you wake up and we provide comfort measures, both medicines for nausea and for pain that, so when you wake up, you're more comfortable. We do nerve blocks, all sorts of other things. So 
the uh, the assumption that you sleep is probably the one common misconception. It's not really sleep. Mm. There are times when we run sedation where it is kind of like sleep, but for the most part, it's it's actually it's uh it like I said, it's medical induced coma. You don't actually have REM sleep. You don't actually dream or anything like that. So it's not really sleep, but it's easiest to describe that to people because otherwise it's kind of crazy to think about what we're doing. So yeah. it's the easiest conceptually for the a lay person to understand what's going on. Yeah. So, uh, so the questions that, I mean, I, I had my wisdom teeth taken out. I've had one other surgery other than that. And so the, you know, the questions that you ask people beforehand, what are those, what information do you have to know from the person? Well, I mean, I think the, for anesthesia, you basically have very limited time with a person awake. And <laughs> so I have to do a bunch of things in a relatively short period of time. So I have to get your overall health status. Now I can do that from the medical record, from talking to you, getting a history, I need to know how you've responded to previous anesthetics. So if you've had troubles one way or the other, I need to know those sorts of things. Allergies, obviously, uh, what medications you're on, because my medicines can have interactions with those things. And then I need to describe what I'm going to do to you. And so you have an informed sort of an idea of what's going to happen. And I have to convince you that I'm not going to kill you. And uh, all within about five or six minutes. And I mean, I say it jokingly, but it is actually in many ways, it's, it is a challenge. You have to establish rapport and convince someone that you're, competent and that you're going to do the good job. I mean, it doesn't matter that much. I mean, they could be, you're just going to make their anxiety level worse and they could, you know, which ultimately might give them some problems afterwards, like more nausea and things like that. But you want to try and relax people and make them comfortable with what's for them a very scary situation, right? It's like, you've never heard of an airplane. You never walked on when the first time you walk on, when you sit next to the pilot, you don't know how you know it works. It'd be pretty terrifying. Mm. Uh, and so that pilot's got to convince you everything's going to be okay. And so anyway, it's similar to that. I mean, I think, except that everyone's heard the horror stories. I mean, the one thing about flying is you never hear anyone talks about how they've been in plane crashes. But yet, I guarantee you, you know, a couple of people have had like bad experiences in anesthesia where they woke up or whatever. Most of the time, it's, you know, either extraordinary circumstances or it's someone's cousin's best friend's stepsister or whatever. And, you know, that... Um, and, uh, so those are the sort of things you have to kind of deal with. And I, you know, again, try to get consent from people who don't really understand what the process is. I may tell them, you know, you can go route A or route B. We got, you know, 30 seconds to decide. And, uh, and they're like, well, I don't, you know, I don't even know what to ask. Cause like to try and inform consent on something, anesthesia is really difficult. Hmm. And so I'll, I say, I totally get it. It's like you get on the plane and the pilot's like, do you want to fly at 30,000 or 6,000 feet? And, you know, like I don't care. I just want to get to Los Angeles, right? And so, yeah. And it's the same thing for anesthesia. I just want to get out the other end with a successful operation, and I survive, and I'm feeling okay. I mean, that's, and so that's pretty much, you know, I just have to convince people that I'm going to get them to that to their destination, okay? Okay. So, uh, so have you gotten surgery before? Have you been put under before? I have not actually, okay. which is I can see, yeah, knock I would. Um, so I'm see how long I can go without a surgical scar. Yeah. Uh, but so we'll see. Um. <laughs> So what, if you were to, what would you ask? <laughs> that's, that's what I always ask for experts. You know, if they were in the position, right, that's of, a good question. if they were in the position of you, yeah. What would you ask a, an Like, would you administer your own? Is that allowed? Uh, well, you couldn't really, you couldn't, I mean, yeah. you, that's, that's called suicide, right? Yeah. Um, cause you know, if you administer and you stop breathing, then just gotta be someone to breathe for you. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and, uh, I, I guess the questions I ask, just basically who they are and sort of how often they've done it or where they've, you know, maybe where they trained or something like that. But I think most, at least in the United States, most places you go, they're going to have competent people who are taking care of you. And um, I think just kind of knowing who it is and what sort of 
who, what kind of person they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the sense that they are, again, they're competent. Usually, I mean, most people, I would say you can tell if they're competent or not. Mm. I mean, you know, you walk, some people just look like they don't know what's going on or they're all hairy or frazzled or something. Mm. I'd be concerned if that was my anesthesiologist comes in like, you know, looks like, you know, they're shirts and tucked and they don't look like they're, you know, like they don't know where they are or something like that. Or it's their first day in the hospital. You know, I think, you know, are you familiar with where you are? So how long have you been here? You know, I've been okay. here two year two. So they've been there like, oh, I've been here two weeks. I might be paused a little bit, but mm. I think those are pretty much my question. I mean, I would ask other questions like, you know, where'd you train? What's just because I'd be personally interested in, you know, who they are and and where they came from just because I'm, you know, we have shared background. Yeah. Yeah. So what, and so what do you, um, you know, you ask the people the question, uh, the questions get, get, you know, you establish a report. What do you physically do? Do you actually administer the anesthesia to them or do you like prepare the, the, the serum or whatever the form? Like, what do you physically <laughs> do? Like the rubber meets the road moment yeah. of your job. Yeah. I don't have my own cauldron, so I'm not actually getting the, the <laughs> hearts of a newt. All the men. <laughs> All the medicine come from pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and so, so what I do, um, <clears throat> so we have to have an IV access generally, unless it's a child. If it's a child, they'll usually breathe themselves to sleep. Mm. And so the anesthetic is comprised of sort of three portions, I guess you'd say. There's, there's induction where you go off to sleep. There's maintenance where you keep someone asleep during the surgery. And then there's emergence where they wake up from anesthesia. And so all those three portions are, have different things going on. Okay. Generally, the induction and emergence are the most, they're the busiest. Much like an airplane, right? Like getting off the ground and landing are probably the two biggest parts. There's obviously flying the plane, which is important. You don't want to get lost or go somewhere. If there's some problem, you want to be aware of it. But generally speaking, those the the middle portion is less busy for us. It's the it's the get it's a preparing for the surgery, for talking to the patients, for and then for dropping them off in the recovery room, talking to the nurse and telling them about the patient, their health history, what happened, the surgery, blood loss, IV fluids they received, all those sorts of things. So for getting off someone off to sleep, you basically take them back to the room. You get them situated in the bed, you get all the monitors on, you have them usually breathe some oxygen and pre-oxygenate them so they get up to 100% oxygen for a little while. So it gives you extra time to do what you need to do once they're asleep. You administer medication through the IV and they go off to sleep and then you put, and then usually you put some sort of breathing device in for them, either in their trachea or in their back of their throat. And and then just depending on what kind of surgery it is, there might be other lines and things you do too, depending on what the surgery, you might have a more advanced uh, invasive monitoring if you need it for arterial lines or central lines or things like that totally dependent on the surgery and the, and the patient. Okay. Wow. Um, what is the most uh, difficult part of your job? Uh, I guess we could, could talk about your most difficult and also the most, uh, like unnecessary, like paper pushing or anything like that, but what's yeah. the hardest part and the part that you wish you could pass off? Uh, <clears throat> that's a good question. I don't know what the hardest part. I mean, there it's with any job and position. Sometimes the hardest part is having a room that's uncomfortable. Like mm-hmm. I've had, where you have someone who's not, who's having a bad day, their surgeon or the nursing team or the scrub tech or something like that, or dealing with, dealing with something. And so those can be difficult. I mean, patients who are very sick, it can be very, that can be hard. I mean, I just dealing with someone who's on the edge of dying, I suppose you'd say, and you're trying to resuscitate them and keep them, you know, alive. And so that can sometimes be a challenging and, um, and I, th- I think that's probably, as far as the administrative things, I, the nice thing about anesthesia in general is we don't have a whole lot of administrative stuff, at least in the hospital setting. Navigating the electronic health records is challenging, obviously. Um, and there's to find the relevant information is oftentimes a little bit a little bit hard. But 
for us, it's not as much a challenge as it is for other specialties because they're doing, they're more, um, uh, they're more uh, intellectual, not intellectual is probably the wrong word, but um, cognitive sort of skills. And okay. sort of they have to write and for charting, they have to do a little more charting as far as, you know, we talked to the patient for 40 minutes. I examine them. I've, this is my assessment, my diagnosis, and then, you know, what I think the treatment plan should be. And so for them, it's a lot, the, the paperwork is a lot bigger problem for them. I mean, we have obviously a problem with paperwork on the back end as far as billing and stuff like that. Yeah. But for the most part, the, the doing the job is, is not too hard from a paperwork standpoint. It's nice when we have paper, but you know, usually it's actually all electronic stuff now, which is a little bit more cumbersome. Right. Okay. Yeah. And we'll definitely talk about the whole payment insurance thing in a little bit. And uh, that's the, you know, a lot of my issues with the health and issues and ignorances of the healthcare system have to do with that. But um, why don't you tell the people, um, you know, why you started your podcast, why like the in, I, we covered like the inspiration for it earlier, but like give the premise of what the podcast is. And, you know, you have your little intro that you read and stuff <laughs> like that. But, um, you know, what do you want to do with it? And what are your goals? So my goals for the podcast were to uh, help physicians understand what's going on and to help patients or those who are no physicians better understand what we're sort of their challenges we face in the U.S. healthcare system. Um, you know, there are a couple of issues that were really important to me, main certification, uh, drug shortages, and um, sort of the, just the third-party payer system in general. And so those are things I wanted to sort of get off, get off my chest, try and explore a little bit more with other people who are experts and just trying to figure out what's what's going on and sort of how to and how to better describe it to the lay public because a lot of these things, uh, it's you know it gets so very technical. It's very difficult to try and go in a conversation like you say. What's the elevator pitch for major certification? Well, that's really tricky because I can tell you why it's so terrible for physicians, but for me to tell you in like two minutes, it's almost impossible just mm -hmm. because it's such a technical regulatory you know technical discussion. So anyway, so my show is to to hopefully help people understand those things better and. A lot of docs are just busy just doing their job and and there's they meet these frustrations they don't really know why they're there and and so my hope was just to, to again better describe it give them the more information about what the the origin of their problem is maybe a solution maybe not uh and then for others just to kind of alert them that these things are going on because you know everyone is probably a patient at some point in, in some capacity some more than others and you want to know why things kind of are sucky sometimes or why, you know, your bill comes in funny or whatever. And, and I think it's important for people to know these things. Again, maybe you can't do anything about it, but you might have a better understanding of the problem. And who knows? I mean, there are people who are entrepreneurial that can come up with solutions to things. I'm certainly not. This is my, the podcast is my entrepreneurial uh, endeavor. And so it's not exactly uh, it. It's been done before. I'm not the first one. So I hardly like groundbreaking, but I, I had fun doing it. I was hoping to get, you know, like I said, a couple dozen people listening every couple shows and I've had far more than that, which has been, I mean, it's been humbling. And so I get, I get lots of people who seem to like it. So anyway, so nice. I, yeah. I enjoy doing it. So your first episode was on maintenance of certification, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. And, and so you've done a couple solo ones, correct? But it's usually with, um, just another doctor and you basically like interview him about what, the work they're doing, correct? Right. It's yeah. yeah. The the paradox is P R A D O C S, yeah. and so that's the the hook. Which, as a, from a branding standpoint, is probably not good because people that are looking there they spell it the right way. Um. So I usually doctor. Sometimes I talk to nurses. Sometimes I talk to other people like professors. Or I talk to a lawyer who's a JD technically, so I kind of my hook around it. But I <laughs> I talk to anyone who's an expert on the field. Um. But they're mostly physicians, and so it's just two doctors talking about some topic and. 
and there's somewhat of an expert in, in a field or in some sort of problem they're facing or oftentimes they're disruptors in the market. And so they're, I just kind of talk to them about how they are getting around that sort of thing. Has it been, um, has it been, have you learned a lot from it or were, were most, most of the information that you learned that people have told you, did you know before they told you about it? I've learned a lot. Okay. Uh, and you know, it's funny cause it's like, if you talk to any teacher, do you learn much when you teach? And they're like, they'll tell you, they'll learn more teaching than you ever do actually in your classroom learning. Right? right. If you ever try and tutor someone in something, often it's cause they ask you the fundamental questions that you never questioned. Like, you know, you know, why is uh, their derivative this way? I remember teaching this, doing this when I uh, tutored uh, algebra or calculus and I never really, you're almost into doing the homework and stuff and you don't even recognize the, the elegance maybe of mathematics, you know, you don't, until you have the chance to step back and sort of teach someone about it. And so it's a lot like that. So anyway, I, there's a lot of stuff that I either didn't know anything about, or I knew something about. And, and so I've been able to learn a lot more. The, the biggest takeaway I've noticed just looking back in the year of, of doing the show, I was very pessimistic about medicine mm. uh, and it, and not practicing medicine. Cause I really enjoy that aspect of it, but the actual sort of like how it's all working and, and is it ever going to be better and all those sorts of things. I was very pessimistic and I'm not so anymore. I mean, I'm much more optimistic and that's been, that's been because of all the people I've talked to who are finding solutions and things that I think are really cool and are finding ways around a lot of these problems that exist in the system. Cause there's, Without a doubt, there are plenty of problems, but uh, I that has been the biggest takeaway for me. That's probably the biggest thing I've learned uh, is that I've been able to better understand how people just fix things. Okay, nice. Um, are there any kind of notable episodes that stand out for you? I mean, you've done I think fifty, fifty or fifty-one, something like that. I just have fifty. Yeah, I've been published. I just listened to episode fifty. Um, and uh, any notable episodes or anything that stands out out of those fifty? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of. You know, it's like asking the artist what's your favorite piece of work, right? right. They're yeah. all all great. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I consider myself an artist, uh, but I think there's some that have been that have been the most uh, the most when I've gotten the most feedback from at least from my colleagues or from friends or you know online. I think episode five, I believe, and I'm gonna. It's funny, you know, at some point you just lose track of what episode was what because for a while I was I knew every episode what I done. Now I'm like I don't remember when I talked to that person. It's like. 10 or 15. So I think it's episode five. I was talking to Dr. Mary Mass. We talked about drug shortages and why there's a shortage of generic medications. And I think that's mm. really important for both physicians. It's something that I deal with all the time as an anesthesiologist. Suddenly I don't have access to certain medicines that I'm used to. Uh, that's a really good one. I think maintenance certification is a good one just to have an idea of what that is, especially for a physician, why it's a problem, what, what's being done about it. And I've gotten a couple episodes of that. The last one, I think is episode 20 with my friend, Mary Mass or uh, Meg Edison. Uh, I've talked to um, uh, Dr. Corson. I believe she was uh, about the forced organ harvesting that's going on in China where they're executing people and taking the organs and selling them to foreign nationals. Whoa. That was something I didn't know anything about. That is really, I mean, aside from being very unsettling, it's really important um, to know that I think. And I think, and it's personally moved me to in our state medical society to try and, work to convince legislators to maybe try and uh, stop helping the Chinese in this sense, because they're executing tens, if not hundreds of thousands of prisoners, political prisoners to take their organs. Um, Whoa. I, Dude, <laughs> that's, that's crazy, man. What episode? Is I'm that? trying to go. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, and I would, you know, I'd recommend you listen to it. It is unsettling though. Um, one of the, uh, I've talked to people about certain need laws, which are problems. Um, I've talked to people about uh, their. I've, I've talked to Keith Smith, who I think most 
libertarian shows we've talked to at some point about his uh, surgery center of Oklahoma where he transparent pricing, but I've talked to an ER has done the same thing. Mm. I just, the last one of the last episodes I just did was uh, a nonprofit's going to do psychiatric full transparent pricing and uh, opportunities for healthcare providers. I've done an episode on physician suicide, which I think is, you know, it's two or three times the national average, the suicide rate for physicians. I think it's a real important thing for people to know about if, especially if you have a loved one who's struggling with problems it's a, it's a serious, it's an epidemic, I guess you'd say. We're losing like three or 400 docs a year to suicide. Um, I did episode 25, which has been my most listened to. Uh, that was where I talked about with my wife, who's a pediatrician. We talked about the loss of our son, Andy, uh, when he was 14, last almost a year ago now. Uh, so we just talk about grief and sort of deal with it, which is nothing at all related to this. But the podcast offered me that opportunity to to talk about something like that and to hopefully help other people and, you know, maybe help myself and sort of going through those things. And so, I mean, it's, it's been a, and I, you know, in some ways you wonder if that's why you ended up starting the podcast to being with is for that sort of thing. So anyway, so man, there's yeah, a lot to go to, to go through. And there's, I think a lot of interesting subjects. I try and keep it interesting. Talk to the FDA and electronic health records, all sorts of things. Wow. Yeah. Everyone out there should definitely check it out. And you know, you got, you do a pretty good job of, of, you know, keeping it layman, you know, like you, you know, there's a lot of these, uh, kind of acronyms and stuff like that, but you pick up on it and, and that's okay. But everyone should go listen to that if they, if they have questions. I mean, like that's, that's one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, so many people have problems with the, the healthcare industry, you know, insurance, academia, all this stuff, but you know, um, Maybe they'd have the same amount of problems if they knew about all of it, but maybe they'd be different different issues or just education. It's what it's good for, you know. So if people listen to that podcast, they, you know, they might it might bring up a whole whole new set of problems, but at least they'd be like based on information and education, you know. Well, and yeah, and I, you know, and like I'm glad you picked up the labeling thing. I I'm very careful about making sure that I don't use too technical information or knowledge or terminology because. I mean, I can use it, but I mean, all I can do is just charge you more for it. Uh, you know, you have pharyngitis, not a sore throat, right? I can charge twice as much, but it doesn't actually help you in your understanding of what's going on. Uh, so, um, so that's what I try and rein my guests in at times. Like say, well, hang on a second. We just got to talk about, you know, what macro means or whatever. Uh, but to your point too, actually, one of the episodes I mentioned is, I think it's 16, but it's, I was talking to Dr. Way Casey, who's a bit of an expert on health insurance. And so it was just on basically how you choose your health insurance because, as a doc, you choose health insurance just like anybody else. We're not any different than anyone else. I have a better ability to navigate maybe through the medical system a little bit, but I still have to deal with insurance and payments and premiums and copays and all that kind of stuff. And so he gave, he has a lot of stuff. He wrote a book about it, but just really how you, how you figure out what you want to do to pick out health insurance, because it can be, it's very deceptive. Um, and I, I guess uh, I haven't done an episode of this, but I was going to, one of the things I actually had is I, I had a, a I had a test done and <clears throat> well I'll go into it now if you got a second but sure, yeah. <clears throat> so I have a direct primary care doc which is one of the things I've talked about quite a bit on the show as well direct primary care is and we can talk about that a little bit later but where I basically pay cash for most things and so I had a Holter monitor because I had an episode of syncope I fainted long story but anyway so I had to get a Holter monitor to make sure my heart was okay my doc said well it's usually 250 250 dollars to this test and run it for a week or whatever but you have insurance you want, just run it through insurance. She's like, I don't usually do that, but we can do that. I said, sure, we'll do that. So I got my Holter done, whatever. And then it's been about a month and a half after I got the results back, I get a bill for the for $5,000. Oh, oh. <laughs> Something that they would have charged two fifty dollars for, right? 
And then my doc calls and says, well, you know, we usually do this and we just send it back and forth to the insurance company. They just keep it denied. And eventually we just bill and settle on something, so, which is, you know, super inefficient. But it's crazy to think that they would even hire, charge 5000 And the point about the insurance, though, is you think to yourself, well, let's say my insurance company says we're going to accept that and we're going we're gonna to pay 80-20 because I think a lot of people have 80-20 plans where you, after you meet your deductible, you pay 20% of the medical costs from there on. Well, let's say they negotiated some deal where they say, ah, we got, you know, we knocked off 40% off your bill. So it's only a $3,000 charge now. And now with the 80-20 rule, we pay 80% of that and you only pay 20%. You just pay $600, right? So I'm paying a premium. I'm paying, I've already paid my deductible for the year and now I'm paying $600 for a chest that I could have gotten for 250. Hmm. So I've, I'm all, I'm paying all kinds of extra upfront money and then I'm paying an extra $350 for a test that I don't need to, right? And so it shows you sort of maybe the screwiness of the of the insurance industry and sort of the pricing and stuff like that, and just the system in general, right? And so this is the whole thing where I talk about a lot of time the show, but those are the examples that are just kind of, they don't make any sense, but they happen all the time. Right. And that's what he talks about in his book. And it's, I think the episode's like picking a health insurance or something like that. So, okay. So yeah, I mean, I have a ton of questions written down just, so I guess we'll, we'll tackle health insurance now. So I don't mean this from uh, a total ignorance, ignorant perspective. Like I know what health insurance is and I know that, you know, it's basically the system that we live in, but uh, I guess the question is, do we, does this system need health insurance and why, like, does it actually need it? You know, is there a way of, of, you know, if I rub my magic lamp and you can bypass it and just get it at low enough a cost. You know, I've been t talking about or I've been thinking about the idea of like an Uber for doctors for a while. You know, why can't I just call you and negotiate a price with you? Like, why is the why does it need to be there as a gatekeeping me mechanism? Well, that's uh, so now we're going to tackle Now we only have 40 minutes to solve a healthcare problem. But mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> I think the I think the important thing to start with, with health insurance is we have, we essentially have a third party payer system, which yep. I think most people are probably familiar with. So you don't pay directly for your healthcare expenses. You may be get a bill later after the insurance company is sort of mediated and paid to some, like I just explained that they, you know, pay 80% or whatever. So you have this, you have basically two people in this transaction, a patient and the, the provider, either the hospital or the physician or the implants or the pharmacy or whatever. And there's someone in between who's actually make moving the money back and forth who doesn't have an, doesn't necessarily, so the people on the other ends don't have any incentive to try and worry about costs or transparency or those sorts of things at all. And so that alone causes all the problems. I mean, if you want to say, what could you do to fix the healthcare system maybe easily? Well, I could say, why don't we just provide most healthcare without insurance? That'd be the simplest measure and say your health insurance. I think you'd always have to have insurance because I mean, just like you have life insurance or housing, you know, homeowners insurance or boat insurance or whatever, disability insurance. There are things that happen that are, cannot be anticipated that happen to you in life, and you can protect yourself financially from the downside of those things occurring. And so that's why you have insurance. Hmm. Unfortunately, with health insurance, obviously it pays for far more. It, it's paying for predictable things like, you know, I'm going to, everyone's going to get a cough at some point or get sick, you know, and need to go to see the doctor. I mean, that's, I'd hardly say that's a catastrophic thing that you, is unpredictable. Maybe breaking a bone and stuff like that, even that is really not really that unpredictable. So you could have different levels of what you call catastrophic care or the unpredictable sort of care, and it'd be significantly less, right? Like you get hit, you get in a car accident, end up in the IC for a month. Well, that's the sort of thing you can't anticipate, and that's why you'd want insurance to cover those costs. 
Uh, but if most of your care was not covered by that and it was just covered as a, any sort of other transaction of anywhere else in the market or anything like, you know, food or whatever, uh, then I think it, things make a lot more sense and they, and you have a system that would make, would, would run more efficiently, I think, and it probably provide better services at a lot lower costs, which would then allow other people into the market who can't afford it right now. So they're forced to go to like, you know, the ER or the urgent care or something like that. So I don't, I mean, that's, it's a big question, but I think that's sort of, that maybe it's at the start of the answer. Mm, okay. So, <clears throat> you know, um, what, so, you know, so it's, it's basically why, I guess, why are the costs so high then? I mean, I know they've gone gone up up in the last you know twenty five thirty years or whatever I get, but also the the value of the dollar goes down. It's definitely gone down in the last twenty five sure. or thirty years. But why are are the costs so high because of the insurance? Or um, like, am I allowed to just call you up and get an anesthetic um care? Or it, it, I mean, I know there's regulations and uh, you know what? Why they do away with house calls? You know, what's that whole thing? You know, that's a long time ago, but. Well, it's interesting you say that because I know actually docs who are going back to that now. Nice. Okay, or, cool. <clears throat> the direct nice. primary care model, where it is actually a model like you mentioned, um, and which is one of the really innovative and cool disruptive things that's happening right now. But uh, what caused the problem? It's hard to say. I mean, I think um, it's a collaboration of a lot of people work acting in their own self-interest, mm. uh, which they thought at the time made sense. And it's sort of like a... I don't know what the a devil's bargain, right? You you agree to relinquish some control or of, over some portion of your economic freedom or whatever your choices in order for to guarantee something. And so I think, mm. like with the for the physicians, they said, yeah, you know what, we'll go with head with Medicare um, rate scheduling. So that means a gallbladder costs the same in every part of the country, <clears throat> or actually, like if you're as part of the country, the Medicare reimbursement for a surgeon is the same. It doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter if you're good, if you're fast, if you're slow, whatever. If you have to reoperate all the time, it doesn't make a difference. And so, most, in fact, with Medicare, what it's done is it's tried to basically treat every transaction as it's standardizing things. And and by using that insurance product, it has the other insurance companies do the same thing. It's more efficient to try and know that you know everything is cost the same if we know it's a certain level of care. But it's hard to determine what the same level of care is, right? I and mean, that's. And then you can also game any sort of system like that. And so you have, you have charting mechanisms that are basically designed to maximize billing revenue. Uh, you have, and you have the entire systems are set up to maximize your billing and not actually to be efficient necessarily, or to provide that value to the patient because the patient is not paying patients. Not, I mean, not only do we not have price transparency, but I can tell you, I have no patients who come up to me and ask me how things much good things cost. I mean, I, I shouldn't say never, but it's like once a quarter. I mean, it's hardly ever. And, uh, you know, I think that's a reflection of just the way everyone sees healthcare. It's not, it's always done with insurance. And so to try and you have to basically get the middle, the middleman, which is the insurance out of the, out of most of the equation. I mean, if all, if all work on your car was taken care of with car insurance, you'd have the same problem with, you know, fill up your tank or oil changes or whatever. Right. I mean, it, it wouldn't be any different. You'd have this huge bureaucracy and, and then you wouldn't have any ability to compete on price if you're a better or you can do things more efficiently because all the hospital can do is maybe pay their workers a little bit less and they can have a little bit bigger margin, but they can't charge different amounts of prices for providing different types of care or better, you know, better care or worse care. So we'll charge less or whatever. Hmm. Everybody's exactly the same, which is, which makes it very challenging. And, and since patients don't care, 
there's there's it's hard for for uh, hospitals or these you know practices there's no incentive for them to like to do it differently because people generally don't make their choices based on economic reasons so so, so that cost doesn't matter do you or so, price doesn't matter let's say pot, price instead of cost oh price okay so when you say that the, that your your patients rarely ask how much something costs do you mean for them or for you like do, are they allowed to know i mean if I, okay if i go buy some bread at the grocery store. I know how much it costs for me, but it's harder for me to, the farther you go up towards the farmer um, and even beyond the farmer, like the, the person who grows the actual seeds, the harder it is for me to find out how much that bread really costs for everybody up the chain. Do, do they have to, do they, are they allowed, do you have to disclose how much it costs for you and the level above you and the, the level above that? Uh, well, I mean, you know, the, so the problem with, with it is since it's all through third party payers, mm. the amount you charge is different. Mm. It's like some people have AAA members and some people have ARP discounts uh. and some people have the military discounts. It's sort of like if you walked in a hotel, I mean, there's, you look on the wall, there's a rack rate, you know, for the hotel, but no one ever pays that rate. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it just really depends on who your insurer is and what the negotiated rate is and how much you're your payment is. And the problem too, for us is if we said, Oh, it's, you know, a thousand dollars. Well, it might not really be a thousand dollars because that person's met their whole deductible. And so maybe their insurance company cover picks up the entire, or maybe they don't, don't have any insurance, you know? So it just totally depends on what your sort of payment is. If you have an HSA, if you have an HMO or point, you know, fee for service, whatever sort of your arrangements you have. So it's really hard. I mean, you could, I could say well, how much we charge, but you know, basically anyone you ask any place if how much they charge, no one actually gets charged that mm. because they all have some sort of negotiated rate with some third party provider or uh, payer. And so it's what makes it very difficult. I mean, and then most physicians in general wouldn't even be able to answer anyway, because they don't get asked the question. They're not, it's not something that's part of the equation. You don't even, you know, really know how much something costs. Wow. Partly because it depends on who's paying, which wow. is weird, but, but, you know, to your bread example, I mean, you know, you probably don't, don't the, probably the guy driving the loaves of bread to the store doesn't know how much the bread costs either. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. There are all kinds of people involved who don't know the transaction costs of things ultimately. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's so complicated and I can tell why, you know, some people, like you said earlier about, you know, people just want to know that they're going to wake up okay. <laughs> you know, that's at yeah. the end of the day, you know, they could know all that stuff, but what's most important to them is like their well-being and man, it's very complicated. Um, <laughs> well, but to that, I would say too, they do care how much it costs. Mm. It's absolutely important because you know you want to know what the bill is going to be like, bill's going to be after it's done. It's a totally reasonable expectation. I mean, anytime you get any other service, you want to know what you're getting and how much it costs. Here, you just want to know what you're getting. It doesn't, and I mean, you know, want to know what it costs, but no one can really tell you. And the systems are designed such that they can't even tell you the answer anyway if they wanted to. Hmm. Okay. It's it's really weird because you have a business model for the hospitals, especially that are not designed to know what things cost. They don't even know how to set a price in many ways. They just kind of set really high. I think, well, that'll cover it. But it's for them to, for them to know how much something costs, it's their, their business model is never set up that way. So it's really difficult for them to have a transparent price because they were never designed that way. And so to try and retroactively kind of get back to there, it's like breaking down their model, business model and, and starting from scratch. And they just don't know how to do that. Wow. Uh, is healthcare a human right? Is it humor? Well, in the sense that people have a right to my time and services for no compensation. I mean, no, but I would say I don't have a right to that loaf of bread or anything like that. I mean, I think um, we have negative rights, right? And so, I mean, I'm very libertarian in that sense, but I, I, I am 
I give freely to other people. I'm, you know, compassionate and all those sorts of things, but I don't think I have a right to force anyone to do anything they don't want to do mm. without compensation any more than they do have a right to do it to me. So I think, I don't know. I think it, the society works best when it operates in that function. And it, and so the people who do well are the ones who provide value for others. And so that's uh, in some way. And so I think that makes much more, things much more cooperative than forcing people to do things against their will. Um, I, I forgot to ask you earlier, but how, how many years have you been a doctor? Well, I've been a doctor since 2000. So 19 okay. years, the first, so 2000, I graduated from medical school and then you're a doctor. You don't know anything, but you're yeah. so you're a resident. I was a resident physician until 2004. And then I came to Grand Rapids and I've been in private practice now for almost exactly almost 15 years now. Okay. So you were, um, you were, you had your own private practice when Obamacare got enacted. I mean, yeah, our practice has not changed. It has not sense. changed. I mean, it was okay. I mean, no, not really. Okay. I mean, it's more expensive for us to run our operations because of because of the cost of insuring our employees. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it didn't really do much. I mean, it would say it didn't do much, except it increased the cost of business for us. Um, like I said, it costs more to just run things in the, in the business. Which it does for every business, right? I mean, as far as your the cost of healthcare is more expensive, and so your wages go towards healthcare, not to actual wages for people. Mm. Uh, and there's a regulatory changes, and I mean, there are other things that happen with with uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, which affects our practice, but it doesn't significantly affect our business. It's not like things have been nationalized. I mean, I think there's more people with Medicaid mm. than, um, and there's a most of the things, the trends as far as insurers and things like that has changed a little bit in the sense that people are more likely to not have a government or they're more likely to have a government payer than a non-government payer. But that's also a demographic shift, right? Just as the baby boomers leave employment and go get, you know, Medicare. And there's more Medicaid too, I suppose. So there's a little bit less self-pay, but that's changed things a tiny bit. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I, I've, you know, gotten... I got into politics, you know, four or five years ago, something like that. And not that, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., but I'm not like into politics. I'm not like to work for a political firm. Or I'm just interested in it. But, you know, people conflate. Uh, I don't know. They conflate. They call health insurance health care. And like I just asked, you you know, they say health care is a human right. And what I think about all the time is is just kind of, you know, I'm a, kind of a self -start, starter. and I like bypassing stuff. So, you know, um. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, 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 you know, if people wanted to get around the health insurance system, like, you know, there's limited ways to do it. Like you can train yourself to be a doctor. All these are very difficult and like, you know, very, very. And so I'm, but I'm approaching this like a complete dummy. Um, and, but if, you know, it, what, what if someone wanted to start a 10,000 person online community to train each other to be a doctor that, you know, you, you know, you can't train yourself to be every kind of doctor, of course, you know, could you do that with 5,000 people, 10,000, would it take half a million, you know, you know, do you see that as a thing that's ever possible? I mean, I, th I think this, the simpler solution is to use people who are already trained and yeah. qualified to do that mm -hmm. and to find just a more efficient way that to do it. I mean, yeah, you could teach yourself how to make a pencil, right? That's a right. famous Milton Friedman. Exactly. Right? I yeah, pencil, that's what I'm right? asking. Yep. I mean, you have. 20 million people it makes i was asking actually funny thing i was just asking my son who's 12 about that like how many people think it takes to make a pencil he's like i don't know 20 <laughs> thinking yeah. it's got to be more than i think right because he's asking the question so it might be like a million people and you know all the people can trucking moving things around shipper containers and someone's got to build the containers and move the stuff across the ocean um so the advantage you have you just have to have a system that 
that makes sense financially. And so if, if you wanted to exit the system, right? Like you didn't yeah. want to do the traditional healthcare system. You're just like, I'm tired of paying health insurance. I'm tired of going through these regular, um, you know, run of the mill sort of ways. So what would you do? And so that was like one of the episodes I did. So I think, you know, you would, you move to a direct, so most people's access to a physician is, a, is their primary care, their family doc or something like that, which you generally don't have to see a whole lot unless you're older and start getting a little more sick. So you get a direct primary care physician, which of which there are more of them now. And so that's basically just a membership-based uh, physician. You pay 50 to $75 a month, depending on how old you are and what the where you live. I mean, government charges different amounts. And that usually provides you full 24-7 access to a physician, unlimited visits. Um, so oftentimes in most states, they like 30 plus states, they can provide your prescription medications that are not controlled because most of them like, don't like have controlled substances in their office for obvious reasons. Um, and, uh, and so then they will help you navigate things in an inexpensive way. I mean, that's what I switched to because I was just tired of going to a place where I had a doc who had 2,500, 3,000 patient panel, didn't know anybody. I could never get in to see him. I go in, I see a nurse practitioner or a PA, and frankly, they didn't know what they were, you know, I know more than them oftentimes. And so there's not much use to me going to see them. Uh, so it would, it made more sense for me just to go to the, to this direct primary care route. It's kind of expensive had it been 1980, but now $50 a month seems dirt cheap to most people. $600 a year for your healthcare yeah. for like 24 seven. Uh Oh, you still there. And we're live again. All right. Sorry about the tech stuff, everybody. I hope people are still watching out there. It's about a 10-minute silence right there. Um, I have Dr. Eric Larson in the building. Um, we're just gonna. I'm gonna splice these uh, two clips together and put them on uh, the YouTube and the podcast platforms. You know, after the fact. But we were just talking about basically what we we're. I think we we're just talking about is I was asking why people can't start their online town. And train themselves to be doctors, some crazy shit like that. So um, I don't know exactly where we left off, but I think you were like mid-sentence when it died. So you can kind of right. So yeah. um, before the healthcare, the health insurance attack that that tried to shut us down because uh, they don't want us talking about this way of bypassing their system. But mm -hmm. so I was talking about direct primary care and sort of how you can provide, how you can get the get this this coverage with it through membership-based process at relatively in, uh, affordable uh, care. I mean, my my doc, in fact. I think over half her patients are actually immigrants who have no health care. And so for them, it's, you know, it's very affordable, 50 bucks a month, pretty much anyone can afford. Mm. Uh, and then they have access to a, you know, a regular doctor. And uh, that's pretty unusual. Um, so anyway, so that's one, one sort of leg, I guess you'd say of getting around the system. Okay. The second would be like, if you don't, you're going to have to have some sort of coverage for when things do happen that you can't anticipate, like, you know, get in the hospital or, you have to have a surgery that you didn't expect, whatever it might be. And so for that, you will need some sort of coverage or, uh, and so you can either just pay all out of pocket and all the savings you're getting for not paying insurance. Eh, most people aren't good, especially in this country at saving money like that. And right. it's, and also there, the cost can be pretty high. So, and the, finally, the other part of it is, is probably helpful having someone who's used to negotiating prices and figure out what a fair price market prices for certain tests and things like, you know, you just going to the hospital and say, how much does this cost? They're not going to, you know, you're coming for an, an, a position of ignorance. You don't really know how much there's no Kelly blue book for hospital you know, prices and stuff like that, at least that you'd have access to. So uh, there's these health sharing industry uh, ministries, which are a great way to get your sort of have your health insurance sort of it's way basically what you're doing is you're paying other people for their healthcare that they're getting wherever they might be. And so it's pooling resources. You only need a couple thousand. You can easily do in your town of 10,000 if you, far less, it sounds like 
And so health sharing ministry is a great way of having that insurance coverage, that coverage for the unexpected. And except you're in a community where people are working to try and keep you healthy and they're trying to actively, you're actually all working together to try and lower costs and to maintain good pricing. And so by that measure, it, it probably groups good people together who are going to look for the discounted rates for the testing or you know for imaging or laboratories or pharmaceuticals. And so those ministries are really great. Uh, it's not for everybody, but for lots, it probably is a reasonable alternative. And that way you've pretty much, since you're sort of the one who's making the decisions, the financial decisions, when you go to see a doctor or whatever, you're the one who's in charge of the, the, of the purchasing of the product. And so it, the third party portion is sort of removed from this process, except for the, except for this unusual situations in which, you know, you're in a coma or something like that. But so you're actually directing and they and they help you navigate working through it, ne negotiating prices and things like that with hospitals. And, uh, and so that's probably a good way of, of that's the other sort of part of it, I think. And, you know, that's how I would probably start my, my, uh, my end run around the triple healthcare system. And the nice thing is you can do that. Hmm. Um, you know, there are lots of regu regulations or lots of things that would stop you. For instance, you could just go practice medicine without a license. I mean, in any state, there's always medical licensing laws. Right. Uh, you know, there are other ways of getting around that. You can go for lower level training and you can sometimes, they are still allowed to, like a nurse practitioner, they're allowed to practice without a uh, medical license, but they can still pretty much practice medicine and prescribe medications. Not every place, it's, every state's different as far as their regulation laws. Um, so anyway, they're the the two things I would say is direct primary care and then the insurance thing, and that that provides you those that with the high level care you're expecting with physicians, and then also uh, you're getting, I think, relatively you're saving money at least from a health insurance premium standpoint mm. with the ministry. Um, should there be a Kelly Blue Book? For, for, for medical care and prices and things, do you think that would help stuff? If there was like a, like a, you know, all encompassing, you know, you could anyone could pull any record, anyone could pull any price. You could, there's a VIN number for doctors. You know, there's a, you know, would that be a benefit? And if not, if so, why isn't there one? Uh, I mean, there is in in a sense there is. Like if you could use the surgery center, Oklahoma is a good example. They've got fully transparent prices for all their surgeries. Now it's not every surgery. It's not everything that can happen to you. So in that sense, it's not that helpful, right? I mean, if you got pneumonia, well, the surgery center of Oklahoma is of no use to you because mm. they're not going to do it. There's no pneumonia surgery, right? right. Um, I, I think there are, I, the problem is, is because the system is just so screwy with all the different third party payers. There's no way you can even come up with any sort of pricing system. I think it, it's safe to say that almost any other industry there is a market rate that sort of emerges in mm. sort of the average, right? Like if you go to, if you want work done in your car, the average hourly rate for fixing your car is about the same with wherever you go to a mechanic. Now in some cities it'd be more expensive than others because the city's more expensive to live in, you know, cost of living, all those sorts of things. Uh, but a market sort of emerges that is sort of like a usual range. You're not going to usually get three estimates on painting a room and they're going to be like orders of magnitude different. Like, I was I think it was a New York Times article came out recently said someone got a told me it was one place is a hundred thousand dollars another was forty. I mean that's like crazy difference, Whoa. right? Yeah. Um, you don't usually see that in a regular market. I think you know that's unless there's unusual circumstance like you know actually it's in the same city but you know New York's gigantic so maybe really they aren't like they're different. You know yeah. I mean, it's like not the same location. Um, but generally there's like a market rate emerges for whatever it is, 
because some people are better than others. Like some painters are better and they're busy all the time because they're really good. And so they can command a higher rate price in the market. Now they're not going to be able to price it so much that no one ever hires them. They find some point balance that works for them and keeps them busy and, you know, and, and it keeps their customers happy. The same is, could be easily the case in medicine. It, it isn't, but that's, I mean, that's what you think, but because we have all these third parties that are trying to impose these, uh, like, you know, trying to make things standardized, mm. it forces them to find a certain price that they're going to compensate for whatever procedure it is, no matter where you are and, or whether, how good you are, uh, or how well people, their patients recover. Mm. And the problem is, is that it's hard for, as a patient to sort of navigate, you know, who's good, who's not good. What do I look for in a person, a physician, a surgeon, whatever you'd hope. I mean, in the, you know, in the, the distant past, it was you talk to your doctor, your you know, family physician or whatever, and say, who's good for getting my shoulder repaired? And they would know that they'd say, oh, well, you know, no one's good in town. I've had my patients have not done well, gone to this surgeon, this surgeon, this surgeon, but that one, they do great. Or maybe you just need to go to, you know, Mayo Clinic or whatever. And so that's, that's the sort of medical knowledge you'd hope for. Similar to if you had, a, you need, had some legal advice, your attorney's not, you know, specialize in real estate law or something, they're going to find someone who does and they're going to know people who are good if they're, you know, useful, you know, referral point. So, I mean, that's the best way is probably local knowledge. Hmm. That's not generally what's done because everything is standardized. Right. So it seems like, you know, you know, we talked about, you know, as a joke, you know, trying to solve the uh, medical industry in an hour and a half or whatever. So it's, but it seems like a th two things to chip away at it is like, uh, decentralization and transparency. You know, that place in the Oklahoma Surgical Center, um, you said does that, but not for things that aren't surgery, of course. But if you could decentralize, localize, and uh, make it a little more transparent, it would at least improve it a little bit. Am I correct? Yeah, and I absolutely. And I, the thing that I, I found so encouraging is that there's, because it's gotten so expensive and the problems we had in healthcare before were really expensive, it, you know, all problems with kinds of problems with access and whatever that hasn't gotten any better. If anything has probably accelerating gotten worse since the adoption of the affordable care act, uh, that because things have gotten more, there are people who are now there's, there's such a, there's such a uh, point of entering the market that you can save money. Uh, so what before would have seemed crazy to pay $50 a month for someone that you might be able to see once a year. Now it seems very reasonable. Right. And so it's an, once you hit like what, if you can cut costs by 90%, then suddenly you're going to have disruptive on, you know, innovators come into a market and fix things. And so these direct primary care docs are a great example of that where they come in, they're making about the same amount of money they made in a large a traditional system. They're practicing medicine probably in a way that's more uh, preferable to them. They only have 500 patients, maybe or 400. They know them well. Uh, and they're providing a value uh, high, and they're practicing medicine much the way they rather practice than they did before. And, but because it, it got so expensive, now they seem like a very reasonable, where there's now a price point that people are like, oh yeah, that's actually a really good idea. And they want to hit that similar to, you know, Uber, you know, some, you know, some point, no one cares about taxi cabs and stuff. And so I think, you know, the important thing with this is once you have a market alternative that is effective, it will draw people in and who are going to, who would ordinarily, you know, not even think about it. And so I think you're getting providers, uh, physicians who are interested in this sort of thing. And you're really getting a lot of people who are patients who are interested in this sort of thing. And it just needs a critical mass of demand. And I think this, this will be the first big, huge innovation that's going to sweep this 
country. I really believe we're just a couple years away. Mm. Because a few years ago, I talked to med students and they thought I had three heads when I mentioned direct primary care. And now they've, they've heard of it. And in a couple of years, they're going to come out of residency. It's like, why would I want to work in some place where I could see, spend seven minutes with a patient rather than I can go to a place where I work, see eight patients a day and spend an hour if I need to. Mm. I mean, who wouldn't want to have that system? It'd be much, you're going to provide much better care. You're going to have a better handle on your, your patients. And I mean, that's, I think that's going to be the first, the first big iteration. And then once that's happened, once patients start to say, well, why am I going to this place where I don't even see my doctor half the time or, you know, only a third of the time do I see the person I thought I was going to come see, I'm seeing some mid-level or some random person I've never met before and whatever, and they can't answer my questions. Why don't I just go pay a little bit more and go to this other place? I mean, I think that's what's going to happen. And then once that demand is there, then there's going to be explosion of people moving to there. And that's the disruption. That's sort of that market disruption that whatever the systems want to do about it, it'll be too late for them to stop it. Mm. I mean, I, I, I truly think, and then the other specialties will come along too, as far as, I don't know how they'll structure it, but you know, I'm not, I told, I told you at the beginning, I'm not an entrepreneurial in that sense to like anticipate these sort of things. But what like Keith Smith's done as an anesthesiologist in surgery center of Oklahoma, that's an example for, for solving one small part where you have outpatient surgeries and you and and by just having his center, he's set he's set a market rate that other people are like. Well, I'll just fly to Oklahoma City, or do you want to do my gallbladder for two thousand dollars? And they're like, and the hospital local hospital say, eh, we'll do it for twenty one hundred dollars. You're like, well, okay, that's cheaper than getting a plane and going to Oklahoma City and coming back. And so by that, just having his transparent prices, he has set he's done the Kelly Blue Book for that little portion. All you just need a lot more people doing that sort of thing, and and I think that will be the way things will change. Mm. And, and it's really cool seeing that it's actually happening now too. So I'm, I'm very encouraged by that. And I'm, I'm not looking to DC or Lansing for, for the solutions. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so with, with the kind of internet outage that just happened, I kind of lost track of time a little bit. Are you available to stay for 15 more minutes or so? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. Okay. Yeah, so no um, the last thing I wanted to talk about for just some kind of uh, funny questions at the end. Well, first of all, I oh. thought it was funny about your uh, podcast that you guys uh, kind of don't like the term provider. I heard you guys talk about that a few times. Yes, in episodes. And I actually mentioned, I even say it, I can't get it out of my head sometimes yeah. too. Because I'm because I'm talking about hospitals and people, but yeah, right. I, yeah. <laughs> why why is that? It's just it's like cheesy to you, or what? uh, well, no. Because so if you're in the industry, and I even hate using the term yeah, industry, the but industry. if you're in medicine, <laughs> if you're in medicine, uh, there is a there's a huge push by hospital systems and by uh, insurance companies to treat everybody who treats patients as if they have the same level of training. That doesn't matter, like. If you go to, um, it's sort of like if you were, if you were going to on an airplane, you know, and the, you're not going to call your pilot just to provide like any person who's staying in the airplane is not a provider. There's some people who have different specified roles and they have different levels of training mm. and expertise. So by devaluing it, basically calling everybody the same, you're sort of just like saying you're not any better or any different. And we don't, we don't value what you're, what you're bringing to the table. And so mm. There are so many times that people are called providers because this is the problem when it comes to billing. I can bill exactly the same whether you see a nurse practitioner, a CAPA, or a physician for you know whatever condition it is. Well, for a hospital system or any sort of employed setting, they're gonna. Why wouldn't they want you to see the person with less training? Because you generally, it doesn't matter to them. They get the same amount of revenue because they're not paid on value. They're paid on volume, and so the more people they can get through, the more visits they get, the more uh, revenue they get. 
And so they don't really care. And they, and it's also easier than writing. So when you visit your physician slash PA slash nurse practitioner, blah, blah, blah. Now they just say, when you see your provider, you know, this is what you expect. And so it just chafes physicians because, you know, we have four years of medical school. We have residency training, which been three to six years. And then you go out and practice and you're like, oh, you're the same as a person who did this online. You're like, well, that's crazy, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's why people feel feel that way. Okay, gotcha. So I guess um, the last kind of big question I have is, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I'm totally if you if you want to come back on for a podcast in a couple months, something like that, just to talk about this, because we could talk about academia and metal, medical school for another 90 minutes. But like, what is the, you know, can you talk about just a second between uh, like about the difference between uh, medical school and college as a gatekeeping mechanism versus a skills trainer? Because at the end of the day, like someone allowing you to get a license isn't making a person less sick. It's the skills that make the person less sick. It's the skills and it's the the, um, the actual medicine. And like I said earlier, like the rubber meets the road stuff is the thing that heals people. But also you have to go through this process you just described, you know, this, you know, four to 10 year process of, of becoming a doctor. But do you see that as, as necessary as the number of years or um, like, can you just talk about like what that whole process for a little bit? I think that's an interesting question. It's not one I've actually um, dove one into so mm -hmm. far, but I, I think there's a lot of credibility to that sort of statement. You know, you look at college, what's the value of college when you're going and spending four years? And oftentimes you're not learning any life skills or skills that are important for employment. I mean, I would argue with engineering, a lot of the things you're, you're, you are learning are probably skills sort of, or uh, they're important knowledge that, you're gonna, that you may apply later in your career. Mm -hmm. I say that as someone who's not, been an engineer in private practice, actually as a, as a job. So that may be totally off base. Um, but I would say with medical school, it's very interesting because it, there are a couple of years where it's cognitive, where you're basically learning, learning things. And then you, you have skills base. You're trying to learn how to interview a patient, how to examine them, how to look at them and figure out a differential diagnosis and how to, how to basically figure out what's wrong with somebody. One of the most important things you learn as a medical student is just recognize someone who's sick. And that mm -hmm. sounds weird if you're not in medicine. But you talk to anyone who's medicine, it's like, can you tell when someone's sick? They're like, yes, I know a sick person and a not a sick person. Sick person being someone who's like imminently something's really wrong with this person and we need to take care of this right away. It's like triaging, right? I mean, yeah. essentially, you need to learn that. Obviously, nurses learn this skill as well. Uh, nursing is different in that they don't work a, focus on the diagnostic aspect of it. So they're working on just treating things and like, you know, providing care. But not necessarily figuring out what's wrong and how to and how to treat it. So it's a different sort of way of looking at, at approaching problems. But there's probably something to be said by does medical school need to be so long or does it need to be done differently? Do we need to have some of the do I need to have a knowledge of the Krebs cycle in biochemistry? Does that help me in treating a single patient? <laughs> probably not. But if you look at what the reason for that was, a lot of the medical education came about was that I think in the forties or I think it's like the forties, when these medical schools they lost all their docs who were the ones teaching in medical school. So the only people left on campus were professors who were in biochemistry or physiology or anatomy, whatever. And so they, well, we got to teach these guys something. And so that sort of became the standard of what classwork coursework was because you didn't have the apprenticeship available at that, at the medical student level. And so medical students now, they have a lot of esoteric learning that is probably not practical to performing the job. Hmm. There is a level of, knowledge you have to have a basic physiology and um, pathology and whatever and that immunology 
does it need to be this way it is structured now? Probably not. Mm-hmm. How you do it differently? Not sure. Okay. But I think there's probably something to be said that you could reduce a year of medical student school or something like that and then have maybe or have a more focused apprenticeship portion. The problem too is with billing and the way it works, which I hate to always keep coming back to this, but yeah. Medicare is the one that kind of sets the the standard rules for things. And so when they say to give you an idea of how it's changed is before you'd go to these hospitals, you talk to these people who trained like in the 1960s and they'd say they, they were like an inch. They were like running around doing all the lab tests. They were drawing blood in patients. They were saying they were writing orders they do all this sort of thing throughout time that has changed the role of the medical student in the education process. And so then it became, well, the, the chief resident needs to do, um, or the, the junior resident intern needs to sign off on all the, uh, the notes and all the orders and so now what the medical students done is a little bit devalued. And so what they think and what they're writing, it doesn't matter as much. The stakes are less, right? And so if the stakes are less, you're not going to pay quite as much attention to what you're doing. It's less skin in the game, right? Gotcha. So then they, so then Medicare said, well, now we need to make sure the chief resident signs off. It can't just be an intern note. I mean, that person doesn't know anything. We're not going to pay full, fully for that. Oh, okay. And so, you know, it takes a couple of years for the hospital to, to adjust sort of their billing and stuff. And now you you write a note as a medical student. You're signed, co-signed by the internist, and the chief resident has to write their own note. Well, then you know where this is going to escalate. The next thing you know, the, the attending has to be the one writing a note. They can't just say, that I agree with the chief resident's note. They have to write their own note and do their own examination. Do that. And so before you know it, you're having people who are sort of, sort of taking care of patients, but their stake in it is not the same as it was initially with as a medical student. So, mm. so when you're done with your medical school training, you're just farther behind in sort of, in sort of your, your expectations and sort of your knowledge base, because you're not making the decisions, right? I mean, I can sit you next to a pilot every day for a year. You're not going to be great flying that plane until you get behind the stick and start pulling and flying it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's the same thing for medicine. And so it is not a cognitive, it's not entirely a cognitive profession. Some especially sort of are where they just, you know, pontificate and we kind of make fun of them in anesthesia and other such. But I mean, a lot of them are procedurally based. Like I've got to know how to put IVs in. I've got to know how to intubate people. Yeah. The surgeon's got to be able to, you know, remove a tumor. A radiologist has to, interventional radiologist has to know how to put something to coil for an aneurysm or something. I mean, there are things, there, there are definite skills involved that you can't learn unless you're actually doing it. Mm. So, I mean, what about, you know, starting, you know, one, another thing I think about, you know, I, I'm a music teacher and, you know, I, I don't teach at a, a school or anything like that. I just do it all private and at a school or at a, at a music store. But one thing I think about is like, um, you know, like a guild system or an apprentice system. Like what about starting kids out uh, younger, like 15, 14? I mean, if they're sure they're going to be a doctor, I mean, who's sure about anything when they're 14 or 15? But, you know, people in the people in the past were, I mean, or or they were made to be sure, you know, their parents were like, you know, the in, you know, the in Europe in the year 1600, they're like, no, you're going to be a doctor. Like, that's the family business, you know, and, and there's not as much freedom there, but at least it comes from the family, not from, you know, some other place. But what do you think about, you know, uh, a high school that um, sends kids at 15 or 16 to start, you know, like you said about the pilot analogy, you know, they put them in the the co-pilot seat at 17. Do you think that's possible or a good idea? I, I don't, I don't think know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know that I want Doogie Hauser's taking care of me because mm. uh, I think there's a level of maturity sure. and a level of adultness to medicine that I don't think I'd want someone who's 14, 15 treating me. Now, that being said, there are other countries that start training people based in medical school at 18. They have some sort of proficiency test where they figure out, I don't know, 
academic, you know, prowess or whatever, and they can you get placed into these if you want to to go do these things. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, do you need to do an undergraduate education to go to medical school? I don't know. I mean, when you look at the diversity of backgrounds in medicine and people who go into medical school, I mean, it's not like it's not like there's one that you you have to be a biology major. I was an engineer. About ten percent of I think I think around ten percent of doctors were engineers, the undergrads. I had a philosophy major in my class. I mean, as long as you took the basic prerequisites, which basically show that you could have some aptitude in science, that's really all you need to do. So do you need to have go to four years of, of college? Mm. I mean, it's a selection process, right? I mean, when you have more applicants and you have spots, then you can be very picky about sort of how you do it. But I don't see any reason why you couldn't do it differently. I mean, it's it fundamentally you have to change. It's a lot of history and culture you have to change to do that. But I mean, I don't, I don't know that my four years of engineering necessarily prepared me better for, for medical school. I mean, maybe the academic rigors of it, it helped a little bit because mm. it's obviously different than high school. It's, you know, super challenging, but I don't know. I, I don't think that's unreasonable to say why we, you know, why are you blowing four years of your life in, in college when you don't need to, or five. Gotcha. <laughs> that's how fast you go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just, I guess I thought about that for the, I mean, you, you know, I, I dissected a cat when I was 16 and then you forget about it. You know, you don't do any other, like, and you know, if you're ready to do it then, and I don't necessarily mean you let the kids do, you know, the, the actual care at that age, but it just seems like it's a little bit late and it's a little bit, you know, it's just a little bit inefficient, but again, I'm not inside the system at all. I just am, you know, I'm like, I'm watching a movie. I'm like, Oh, he said the wrong line. And like, do you know how hard this work is? Like, you know, do you have any idea what you're talking about? So it's like, you know, um, so I'm kind of just like dreaming about it and rubbing the magic lamp over here. But, um, you know, it's one of, you know, the healthcare industry. I, I know this is one of the most complained about industries, you know, especially in politics. It's like high, high profile now. You know, there's obviously problems with health insurance and there's these claims made by politicians and all kinds of people that if it was just this, if it was just that, you know, like, so yeah. you know, just thinking about ways to fix it. I don't know. Um, what advice would you have for anyone? It's, I mean, it's you know, not easy. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. I mean, it's so, like what you've described is, you know, like thousands of variables, you know, it's it's from the cost, oh, and sure. you can you you can break it up into so many variables that it's like I don't know. It, it takes this many people to to study it or whatever. Um, what uh what advice would you have for um any aspiring doctors um or younger people that are looking to get into it? What should they know ahead of time? And you know, what would you do differently if you were you know looking at you at age twenty or whatever? That's a good question. I think, you know, one of the things I think I don't recognize that are, is not appreciated by medical students and by residents is the financial aspect of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have people coming out of debt on average with two to two hundred to $250,000 of student loans Ooh. from just medical school. And that's significant. I mean, that's uh, you, you make it up on the back end a little bit, but you're you have to be smart about it. And so I think being efficient with your money, which is not something I would say that I have been. I mean, I've been not been terrible. I mean, I have partners who still struggle and they're, you know, decades older than me. Um, so I think that's real important. I think you have to, you have to go into it and try and minimize your debt. And I've talked to a couple people and my next episode is actually coming out, just talking about this specific thing. So I think it's really important is to know the financial aspects of what you're doing. Uh, then I think, you know, think about how you want to practice. If you, what sort of matters to you, if there's something that frustrates you, try and avoid that and minimize that. Because I think a lot of things, when it with it comes to physician burnout or help when helpless or whatever you want to call it, I mean that that leads to suicide and depression and problems. 
I think you want to try and know yourself and know what sort of works for you and then to develop support networks so that when you have problems, you have some place to go and talk to because I think a lot of people don't have those sorts of things. And so those are important to have in mind. These aren't things you think about. You're just like, oh, I'm fine. I'm going to go to school and I think it's really cool to be a doctor or whatever. It's a challenge. It'd be great helping people because that's, you know, that's mostly why people go into medicine because they like helping people. Right. Uh, and then I think those are the most important things. And then, you know, think about alternative ways of practicing. Like if you're going to primary care, why not look at the direct primary care option? Because I think it's probably a medicine a more fun way to practice medicine, but just kind of have an idea for what's out there and just be, and then when you go into, when you're picking your specialty, just be, just try and be fully aware of what it is and what the implications are. If it's a, a lower paying specialty, you've got, you know, quarter million dollars of debt. How are you going to pay that back? You know, think about that reasonably mm. and those sorts of things. And so, cause that, that all makes a difference because financial stress causes problems for everybody and physicians aren't any different except that they just have, you know, a couple more zeros sometimes after the, after the number, which, you know, people don't think much about when you're 20 or 24, but it, you'll think about it a lot when you're 34 or 44 and you're still, mm. you know, paying that stuff off. It can wow. be really, you know, a real drag. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on and fighting the good fight. That's how I definitely think about doctors. I mean, you know, we, uh, you know, you guys are just, you know, just delaying death a little bit, not to get morbid with it, but it's definitely true. And it's, you know, um, and, you know, I definitely think of you guys as like fighters and as, especially you, uh, doing a podcast that to educate people. That's really cool. So everyone out there should de definitely check out, uh, Paradox podcast. And, uh, why don't you tell people how, uh, how to find you online? All that stuff's linked down there in the, the show description. But why don't, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Sure. I mean, you go to the paradox.com. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S. And that's the website. And you can find all the episodes there. You can find me on any podcast player that I'm aware of. I think it's on everything. Um, when I've searched places, they're always there. I'm a Patreon. You can obviously, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash the paradox. You can go to uh, follow me on Twitter at, at the paradox show. And then on at Facebook, again, facebook and com slash paradox. Just search for paradox and you'll find it. I think that's a little harder one to give out, but those are the best ways to follow me and kind of find out what's going on. But um, just like you, I accept I'm always interested in people and feedback and show ideas, interview topics. Because a lot of stuff I don't know what's going on in medicine that is really interesting. Some things I can't quite do because it's of the, the nature of whatever the discussion is. But mm. I try and um, I try and explore everything and try to be kind of open and transparent about how my practice works and what I think of medicine is and who I am. And so I think... I know that's all we can really do is just have a conversation and see if we can learn a little bit. Cool. Well, thank you so much. All right. Uh, Dr. Eric Larson, everybody. Um, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks everyone out there for ch checking out Call Me Ignorant today and also the ones who check it out, check us out after today. You can find us uploaded to YouTube, BitChute, and FreedomScoop.com after the fact as a video and Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean as a podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at IgnoramusSteve or send me an email at stevenignoramus at gmail.com. If you feel like supporting the show, you can send me some crypto, some lino points on DLive, send me a tip, paypal.me slash stevenignoramus. Also do a monthly pledge at Bitbackers, subscribe, star, or Patreon. Hope everyone out there enjoyed the show. My guest today was Dr. Eric Larson, creator of the Paradox Podcast. You can find his information linked below in the show description. Everyone have a fantastic day. Go inform yourselves.